You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 97 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With the last episode, we set the stage for Sibley's New Mexico campaign by giving y'all some background information about Texas's secession and about Baylor's buffalo hunt. As y'all recall from last week, Earl Van Dorn, the commander of the Confederate Department of Texas, ordered John Baylor's battalion of the 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles to ride westward and occupy the abandoned Fort Bliss at present-day El Paso. Significantly, Van Dorn gave Baylor authority to take the offensive once he reached Fort Bliss. If Baylor thought it practicable, he could invade the territory of New Mexico and attack Fort Fillmore, 40 miles north of El Paso, and the likely staging point for any federal countermove into Texas. But although in the summer of 1861, both Van Dorn and Baylor were worried about a federal invasion of West Texas from New Mexico, there was, in reality, little danger of any such thing. That's because the federal commander in New Mexico, Lieutenant Colonel Edward R.S. Canby, was too busy reorganizing and strengthening his forces to contemplate any offensive move. Last week we talked about how Major General David E. Twiggs surrendered all of the federal posts, government property, and military stores in Texas to the state authorities in February 1861. But elsewhere in the West, the secession crisis and the attack on Fort Sumter set off a run of defections from the officer corps of the U.S. Army as more than 300 southern-born officers resigned their commissions and made their way east to offer their services to the Confederacy. Two heads of Western military departments, Brigadier General Albert Sidney Johnston in California and Colonel William Wing Loring in New Mexico, packed up and left to fight for the South. Besides Loring, many junior officers also set off from New Mexico to fight for the South, including George B. Crittenden, Henry Hopkins Sibley, James Longstreet, Richard S. Ewell, Cadmus M. Wilcox, and Joseph Wheeler. All of them rose to become general officers in the Confederacy. Altogether, 313 officers, about one-third of the total in the entire U.S. Army, left New Mexico and other Western commands to fight for the Confederacy. One federal soldier serving in the Southwest later recalled, quote, We were being deserted by our officers. We were practically an army without officers, end quote. 
When Loring departed Santa Fe for El Paso to make his way east and offer his services to the Confederacy, the 10th Infantry Regiment's commander, Edward Canby, was left in charge of the Department of New Mexico. Edward Richard Sprigg Canby was born in November 1817 in Kentucky, but moved to Indiana with his family the following year. While studying at Wabash College in 1835, Canby received an appointment to West Point, where in 1839 he graduated 30th in his class of 31. Commissioned as second lieutenant, Canby was assigned to a regiment assisting in the removal of the last bands of Cherokees from Georgia to the Indian Territory. He then saw action in Florida during the Second Seminole War and then fought in the Mexican-American War, earning promotion to first lieutenant in 1846. He participated in most of the major engagements of Winfield Scott's campaign to capture Mexico City from the siege of Veracruz to the battles for the enemy capital city and was twice breveted for gallantry. Following the war with Mexico, Canby served in a number of staff positions, doing garrison duty at various posts and participating in the campaign against the Mormons in 1857. Eventually promoted to the permanent rank of major, In 1860, Canby was commanding the 10th Infantry Regiment at Fort Defiance in New Mexico Territory, where he was assigned the task of keeping a close watch on the hostile bands of Navajos in the region. In November 1860, he launched an offensive known as Canby's Campaign against the Navajos in New Mexico. The fighting lasted through December, but failed to entirely subdue the Indians. So in January 1861, Canby launched another offensive, which was more successful, so that by April he had negotiated treaties with over 50 Navajo leaders, guaranteeing the Indians food, clothing, and protection in return for continued peace. In April 1861, when the Civil War began, Canby was still at Fort Defiance. When Department of New Mexico Commander William Wing Loring resigned in June and left to fight for the South, Canby was soon elevated in rank to colonel and appointed to be the new department commander. On assuming command at Santa Fe on June 11th, Canby found his department in serious straits. The resignations of so many officers, together with the federal government's sudden need to withdraw regulars from the West for service in the East, threw New Mexico and the Frontier Army into crisis. On June 14th, just three days after Canby had taken charge of the department, orders arrived in Santa Fe directing that all the regular infantry be marched to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas as soon as practicable. Aware that the removal of the regulars would seriously weaken the territory's defenses, the War Department said that two regiments of volunteers should be raised from the New Mexico citizenry. And so Canby requested that the territory's governor, Abraham Wrencher, issue a call for recruits, and he also sent an appeal to Colorado's governor for volunteer troops to reinforce New Mexico. Canby sent some regulars marching east, as ordered, but when he learned from reliable sources that the Texans might attempt to seize Fort Fillmore, just 40 miles north of El Paso, he dragged his feet releasing other units, and even sent an officer to Washington to explain the situation and plead that the soldiers not be withdrawn from New Mexico. The officer can be sent to the War Department was successful because, in an order dated August 13th, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott notified Canby that the regulars were still to be withdrawn, but, quote, 
at such time and in such manner as will not expose the territory to conquest or invasion from Texas before the volunteer forces of New Mexico are properly organized, armed, and posted, end quote. And so, given that leeway to delay the transfer of some units that had been ordered east, can be set to work, energetically reorganizing his command and concentrating his forces at key points along the Rio Grande and the western portion of the Santa Fe Trail to counter the danger of Confederate invasion from Texas. One of the most important steps can be took to counter any Confederate invasion from Texas was to send supplies and reinforcements to Fort Fillmore, which would be the southern bulwark of New Mexico's defenses, blocking any enemy move north from El Paso and Fort Bliss. He placed the fort's 700-man garrison under the command of one of the few experienced officers left in the territory, a 55-year-old major from Vermont named Isaac Lind. Canby's fears for the fort were well-founded, since, as y'all will recall from the last show, when Confederate Lieutenant Colonel John Baylor reached Fort Bliss in present-day El Paso in July 1861, he wasted little time before setting off up the Rio Grande to invade New Mexico and attack Fort Fillmore with about 300 men of the 2nd Regiment of Texas Mounted Rifles. Lind should have been able to easily fend off Baylor's undersized invasion force, but after sallying forth from Fillmore and making a clumsy effort to drive away the Texans, Lind lost his nerve and decided to abandon the fort on July 27th and retreat toward Fort Stanton, 140 miles across the desert to the northeast. When Baylor discovered that the enemy had abandoned Fort Fillmore, the Confederate horsemen set off in pursuit and easily overtook the Federal Column, which, under the brutal July sun, had been leaking stragglers at an alarming rate. Caught along the desert road by the hard-charging Texans, Lind attempted to form up the remnants of his force, but when only a hundred men responded, he meekly surrendered his entire command to Baylor. Baylor's stunning victory over the hapless Lind had effectively cleared the Federal presence from southern New Mexico, and so on August 1, 1861, he issued a proclamation establishing the Confederate Territory of Arizona, which consisted of all of New Mexico south of the 34th parallel. Baylor named Mesilla the capital of Arizona and himself as its governor. But despite the remarkable success of his operation up to that point, Baylor didn't possess the manpower or the resources to continue the Confederate conquest of New Mexico. That task would fall to Brigadier General Henry Hopkins Sibley. We mentioned in the last episode that at the time of the start of the Civil War, Sibley, a native of Louisiana, was an officer serving in the U.S. Army, and he was stationed in New Mexico. And like many other Southern-born Army officers serving on the frontier when the war began, Sibley resigned his commission and went east to offer his services to the Confederacy. But Sibley did more than that. He traveled to Richmond, where he met with Jefferson Davis, and shared his plan for the conquest of New Mexico with the Confederate president. In his book, Sibley's New Mexico Campaign, Martin Hardwick Hall explains that since Jefferson Davis had taken a keen interest in the American Southwest while serving as Secretary of War in Franklin Pierce's cabinet, Sibley didn't need to convince the Confederate president of the importance of the area, but, quote, his problem was to point out to the president how easy it would be for an army under his command 
to drive the enemy out of the region. Many factors made Sibley confident of success. He was convinced that the Federal Army there was so small that it would be no match against a Confederate force. Capitulation would quickly follow once he entered the territory, and the large quantities of war material at various posts and depots would fall into his hands. He believed that virtually all the American population was pro-Southern, and that the native Mexicans would either come to his aid or at least not hinder his efforts. A cardinal feature of his strategy was that the proposed New Mexican campaign would be primarily self-sustaining. After being initially equipped and supplied in Texas, his army would get all other necessary war material from the defeated enemy, and thus would literally live off the land. The possibility of gaining this vast strategic area with such apparent ease and at a minimum of expense was undoubtedly the major factor which convinced the president of the soundness of Sibley's plan. After all, there was little to lose, yet much to be gained, if successful. End quote. There's no evidence that Jefferson Davis and Sibley talked of anything beyond the conquest of New Mexico, but since the orders Davis issued to Sibley were of a general nature, reading that he was to be, quote, guided by circumstances and your own good judgment, end quote, some historians have seen this as implying that if New Mexico fell, Sibley had permission to extend his offensive to Colorado and other areas, even to California. A post-war account by one of Sibley's key subordinates, Trevanian T. Teal, claimed that Sibley had revealed to him that his plans were, in fact, much more ambitious than the conquest of New Mexico. Teal said that after the fall of New Mexico, Sibley planned to equip and provision his army with the federal supplies he would capture at Fort Craig, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and Fort Union, then march north to Colorado, on to Utah, and finally to California, enlisting additional recruits along the way and securing the West Mining Districts and Pacific Ports for the Confederacy. Whatever the extent of Sibley's ambitions actually were, he left Richmond in July with a commission as a Confederate Brigadier General and orders to return to Texas, and, in cooperation with Earl Van Dorn, the department commander, he was authorized to organize as quickly as possible a brigade of three cavalry regiments, an artillery battery, and any additional units necessary to drive the Federals out of all of New Mexico. Henry Hopkins Sibley was born in 1816 in Louisiana. He graduated 31st of 45 in the West Point class of 1838. He participated in the Second Seminole War and the Mexican-American War, rising in rank to captain in 1847 and earning a brevet to major. In the early 1850s, while serving with the Dragoons on the Texas frontier, he developed an idea for a portable military tent replete with a stove, also of his design, and smoke hole and capable of housing a dozen men. In 1856, he was granted a patent for his shelter, which was essentially a large teepee for military use, and which came to be called the Sibley Tent. Sibley saw service in Kansas in 1856, during the conflict between free soil settlers and pro-slavery border ruffians that caused the troubled territory to be known as Bleeding Kansas. The following year, he participated in the campaign against the Mormons, 
before being dispatched to the territory of New Mexico. Sibley was at Fort Union, about 90 miles northeast of Santa Fe, when the Civil War began, and he resigned from the U.S. Army in May. He left New Mexico a month later, heading east to offer his services to the Confederacy, with the flippant parting words to his former comrades, quote, Boys, I'm the worst enemy you have now, end quote. Well, that brash claim might have been true if Sibley hadn't already become victim to certain personal traits that would nullify his command potential. You see, throughout the New Mexico campaign, Sibley would struggle with poor health and alcoholism. In The Battle of Glorietta, Union Victory in the West, Don Alberts writes that, quote, he was a heavy drinker, even more so than the average hard-drinking frontier dragoon officer, being described later by his soldiers as a walking whiskey keg. He also suffered from some unidentified recurring illness. Professor Jerry Thompson, Sibley's biographer, has analyzed this illness and drinking syndrome and is unable to determine whether the old soldier drank because he was ill or was ill because he drank. Either way, the effect on his performance during the New Mexico campaign was the same and seriously affected the entire venture and the lives of his men. He managed to miss every battle fought during the campaign. Whiskey rather than cowardice was likely the immediate cause, but the effect on the Texan soldiers of his personal habits and obvious leadership defects was almost universal by the end of the campaign. Henry Hopkins Sibley was, without doubt, one of the Confederacy's worst generals. End quote. If the 45-year-old Sibley was not the man for the job with regard to leading the Confederate invasion of New Mexico, the troops he raised for the endeavor were examples of the best volunteers answering the Southern call to arms in 1861. In late July 1861, Sibley was back in Texas after his journey to Richmond and was beginning to organize the brigade of mounted troops that, when joined with Baylor's command, would become the Confederate Army of New Mexico. Recruited in South and East Texas, the Sibley Brigade consisted of three full-mounted regiments, the 4th, 5th, and 7th Texas Mounted Volunteers. With attached supply and artillery units, the brigade that bore Sibley's name comprised a total of approximately 3,200 men. To command the regiment, Sibley chose prominent Texans with considerable military experience. During the campaign, the fourth commander would be Lieutenant Colonel William Dirty Shirt Scurry. The fifth was led by Colonel Tom Green, and the seventh would be commanded by Lieutenant Colonel John S. Sutton. While recruiting for volunteers to fill the regiments of his brigade, Sibley established his headquarters in San Antonio. Unexpected difficulties equipping and arming the men shattered Sibley's plans for rapidly getting his command into the field. Although the men were to have supplied their own weapons, as well as furnishing their own mounts, practically every company reported a shortage of firearms. In an effort to solve this problem, Sibley bought weapons on the open market, market and charged them to the account of the Confederate government. As a result, the brigade came to be armed with practically every type of small arm in existence. Two companies in the 5th Regiment were armed with lances and six-shooters. 
The Lancers, who were Sibley's pride and joy, bore weapons that consisted of 12-inch blades mounted on 9-foot shafts that also boasted 8-by-17-inch red pennants emblazoned with the single white star. Not appreciating this glimpse of bygone Napoleonic glory days, the other Texas cavalrymen called the Lances hog pokers. The Texans' uniforms, particularly those of the enlisted men, consisted mostly of the civilian clothes they had brought with them. With winter weather approaching by the time the brigade was finally ready to head west, Sibley and his regimental officers issued pleas to the citizens of San Antonio to contribute warm clothing and blankets to the soldiers. It wasn't until the third week of October that the first elements of Sibley's brigade started west on the over 600-mile journey across the plains and deserts from San Antonio to El Paso and Fort Bliss. Since the water at many of the springs along the way was inadequate for large groups, Sibley sent the regiments off one at a time in smaller detachments. Sibley traveled separately, making much better time than the regiments, and on December 14th, having established his temporary headquarters at Fort Bliss, he assumed formal command of all the Confederate forces in the area, including Baylor's troops, although he did leave Baylor in his position as governor of Arizona. Sibley designated the force under his command, the Army of New Mexico. The first regiment of Sibley's brigade to arrive, the 4th, marched into Fort Bliss a few days later on December 17th. Over the next few weeks, Sibley's troops continued to arrive at Fort Bliss. For most of them, the long, arduous journey from San Antonio had taken slightly less than two months. On January 3rd, 1862, Sibley ordered all units that would participate in the invasion of New Mexico to move higher up the Rio Grande, past Fort Fillmore and Mesilla, and establish a camp near Fort Thorne, an old army post that had been abandoned in 1859. Fort Thorne was about 40 miles north of Mesilla and about 90 south of Fort Craig. After concentrating his invasion force at a camp above Fort Thorne, the capture of Fort Craig was Sibley's immediate goal. The capture of Craig would provide him with provisions for his men and forage for their horses and mules, and would open the way northward to Albuquerque and Santa Fe. That accomplished, and with the supplies thus acquired, the way would be cleared for the Confederates to advance into northeastern New Mexico for an attack on Fort Union, the major federal supply depot for the entire territory. After the fall of Fort Union and the capture of the goods and materials stored there, Sibley could then plan for the continuation of his campaign and the invasion of the territory of Colorado to the north, where he would secure the wealth of its booming mining regions for the Confederacy. Such a plan may have sounded a bit far-fetched, but considering what John Baylor had accomplished with fewer than 300 men, it might have been easy to imagine that Sibley would do even greater things with ten times as many men. But first there was Fort Craig. The last elements of Sibley's invasion force arrived at the camp near Fort Thorne on February 7th, and on the same day he started his troops up the Rio Grande to begin the conquest of the rest of New Mexico. Sibley's invasion force included the 4th and 5th regiments of Texas Mounted Volunteers, referred to unofficially by the men as the 1st and 2nd regiments of the Sibley Brigade. There was also five companies of the 7th Regiment of Texas Mounted Volunteers, referred to by the men as the 3rd Regiment of Sibley's Brigade. 
In addition, there was a battalion of six companies from Baylor's force led by Major Charles Pyron. And then there was an informal, newly acquired company of volunteers who had arrived at Fort Thorne and offered their services to Sibley. They were called the Santa Fe Gamblers by the soldiers, but they called themselves the Company of Brigands. This group of frontier ne'er-do-wells regarded the war as an adventure, and although they caused trouble by stealing from the local New Mexicans, they proved useful to Sibley as scouts and aggressive fighters. Altogether, Sibley's invasion force numbered 2,515 men and included 15 pieces of artillery, a long supply train, and a herd of beef cattle. Left behind were a large number of sick, as well as a force of 650 men who were charged with protecting Mesilla and the surrounding area. In his book, The Civil War in the American West, Alvin M. Josephy Jr. writes, quote, with Colonel Tom Green's 5th Regiment out in advance, the brigade moved upriver in detachments, planning to reunite in front of Fort Craig, its first objective, some 70 miles to the north. The weather was raw, and the men rode hunched up in their saddles against the needle-sharp sleet and snow that fogged the air and whitened the sandy hillocks and sage flats along the Rio Grande. One soldier noted in his diary that the sleet fell so hard as to almost peel the skin off your face. Nevertheless, the Texans were cheerful. Like their commander, not a few of them looked forward to a victory as glorious and easy as Baylor's at Fort Fillmore. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we get to the arrival of the Texans in front of Fort Craig, we just wanted to mention that late in January 1862, Sibley sent a detachment of 54 men westward to Tucson to provide the pro-Confederate miners there with protection against the Apaches, and also to scout toward the Colorado River and California and keep a lookout for signs of a federal force that might advance from that direction to threaten Sibley's left flank. 
The detachment was led by Captain Sherrod Hunter, a 27-year-old volunteer who had joined Baylor's troops at Mesilla after Apaches had driven him from his farm in central New Mexico. Baylor recommended Hunter to Sibley as a reliable frontiersman who had fought Apaches and knew the country west of the Rio Grande. Hunter and his small party of Confederates completed their 280-mile journey across the desert and mountains and rode into Tucson on February 28th. One contemporary observer, who obviously didn't work for the local tourism bureau, described Tucson, which had a population of 925 in 1860, as, quote, a city of mud boxes, dingy and dilapidated, cracked and baked into a composite of dust and filth, end quote. Well, however unglamorous the place might have been, Hunter's men were greeted with enthusiasm by the local secessionists, and the Confederate Rangers remained in town for over two months. Sibley's concern for his flank and desire to keep a watch to the west was a legitimate strategic concern, since, in fact, a strong federal force was indeed advancing across the desert from California. On April 15, 1862, some of Hunter's men tangled with Union cavalry from California at Picacho Pass, 50 miles northwest of Tucson, giving the present-day state of Arizona its only Civil War battlefield. Shifting our attention back to Fort Craig, Canby waited there for the Confederates with just over 3,800 men. Canby had managed to concentrate almost 1,200 regulars at the fort, an assortment of companies from the 5th, 7th, and 10th Infantry, along with men from the 1st and 3rd Cavalry, as well as two batteries of regular artillery. But the bulk of Canby's force at Fort Craig was made up of over 2,000 New Mexico volunteers and another 500 militia. The garrison was rounded out at just over 3,800 men by the addition of a small company of Colorado volunteers that had rushed south in response to Canby's earlier call for help. As Rich just mentioned, the bulk of Canby's command at Fort Craig was made up of New Mexico volunteers and militiamen. Although neither Canby nor the local Hispanics were particularly enthusiastic about their service together, when the call had gone out for volunteers, the locals' deep-rooted hatred of Texans proved to be a powerful motivator to enlistment, and by late January 1862, some 4,000 volunteers, including 1,200 militiamen, had come forward to bolster the federal defense of New Mexico. At Fort Craig, the 1st Regiment of New Mexico Volunteers was commanded by the legendary frontiersman, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Kit Carson. An important part of Canby's strategy was to deny the Confederates the logistical benefit of the upper Rio Grande Valley, and so he decided to face his adversary at Fort Craig rather than to mass the Federal forces 200 miles farther north at Fort Union. This represented a bit of a gamble on Canby's part, since a decisive Confederate victory in southern New Mexico would leave the rest of the territory ripe for Sibley's picking. Canby, though, probably thought that withdrawing to Fort Union and giving up Fort Craig and Albuquerque and Santa Fe without a fight, besides granting the enemy the resources of the upper Rio Grande Valley, 
would also be a disastrous blow to the morale of the Hispanic volunteers and militia, and so he chose to concentrate his forces at Fort Craig and meet the Confederate invasion force there. Canby's command was made up of a mixed bag of troops, some of doubtful reliability in a fight, but the fort, some 22 buildings enclosed by an adobe and earthen wall, provided a strong position on the west bank of the Rio Grande. By February 15th, the Confederate Army of New Mexico had completed the trek north from Fort Thorne and assembled at a point some five to seven miles below Fort Craig. Sibley knew that Craig, if adequately garrisoned, was too strong to be taken by direct assault, so he decided to challenge the Federals to battle on the open plain south of the fort. And so about one o'clock in the afternoon the following day, Sunday, February 16th, most of the Confederate Army set out, following the frontier road up the Rio Grande. Sibley was so ill-slash-drunk that he was unable to take the field, so the next-ranking officer, Colonel Tom Green of the 5th Regiment, temporarily assumed charge of operations. The Confederates advanced to a spot about three-quarters of a mile below Fort Craig, where Green drew up the men in line of battle, protected by a low embankment that ran across the landscape from east to west. When the Confederates first came into view, Canby believed they intended to assault the fort, but when the rebels remained drawn up in battle formation, obviously awaiting the Federal response to their advance, Canby simply ordered out a detachment to keep a watchful eye on them. Not surprisingly, since he had no good reason to come out from behind the stout walls of the fort, Canby refused to accept the Confederate challenge to a full-scale battle out there on the open plain south of Fort Craig. The Texans remained in position for several hours, but then when it was evident that the Federals did not intend to come out and fight, Green ordered the men to withdraw and return to their camp. In his book, Sibley's New Mexico Campaign, Martin Hardwick Hall writes, quote, the enemy's refusal to fight in the open posed a serious dilemma for the Texans. Fort Craig was too strong to be stormed, especially since the light Confederate artillery could not be used for an effective bombardment. But worst of all, the commissary department reported that only a 10-day supply of food remained. Something would have to be done, and soon. Green summoned a council of war, which, after due deliberation, developed a plan— the army would move to the east bank of the river, bypass Fort Craig, and then recross at the Valverde Ford some six miles above the post. Perhaps Canby, in an effort to prevent the recrossing, might be lured out to fight. The detour would be hazardous, involving as it did the crossing and recrossing of the frigid Rio Grande. Ridges of drifting sand parallel to the river valley would conceal the movements of the Texans. Heavy sands, however, would make it difficult for the wagon train, and the route was entirely devoid of water. End quote. The Confederates were forced to wait two days for a furious sandstorm to subside, but on the morning of the 19th, the wind finally having died down, they retired down the river to the ford they would use to cross over to the east bank of the Rio Grande. By three o'clock that afternoon, the entire force, including the wagon train and beef herd, had safely crossed and set up a dry camp about two miles above the ford. The Confederate movement across the river caused consternation at Fort Craig. 
can be assumed the enemy intended to move up from the ford and occupy a bluff which was about a thousand yards across the river but immediately opposite the fort. If the Texans planted artillery on that elevation, they could easily shell Fort Craig. To prevent that possibility, Canby sent a force of New Mexico volunteers to secure the strategic point. This they accomplished on February 19th, holding the position throughout the night and also the next morning, Thursday the 20th. But daylight of February 20th saw the Confederates continue moving north toward the Valverde Ford. When Canby realized that the rebels planned to bypass Fort Craig, he sallied forth to contest their movement. With a force of regular and volunteer cavalry and one of the regular army artillery batteries, the one commanded by Captain Alexander McRae, Canby set out across the river. The New Mexicans who had occupied the the strategic bluff left their position to join Canby. The difficult terrain, broken by sandy ridges and ravines, slowed the Federals as they advanced eastward toward where the Texans were setting up another dry camp. Once Canby reached the Confederate camp, he saw that the enemy had selected good defensive ground, but he decided to attack anyway. Most of the Federals moved into position without mishap, but then Confederate artillery fire panicked some of the New Mexicans and they fled. With darkness approaching, the confusion spread to other units, and it proved impossible for Canby to restore order. He was forced to break off his planned attack on the rebel camp and ordered most of his men back to the fort, leaving only a strong picket line along the West River bank. No further action took place that night except for one of the more bizarre episodes of the Civil War. Captain James Paddy Graydon, leader of a New Mexico company of scouts and spies, came up with the idea of attacking the Confederate camp under cover of darkness by means of mule-borne explosive devices. You see, with Canby's permission, Graydon packed a dozen 24-pounder howitzer shells in two wooden boxes. After lashing these on the backs of two old mules, he and three or four of his men crossed the river after nightfall and headed toward the Confederate camp. When within 150 yards of the enemy picket line, they lit the fuses, drove the mules forward, and began a hasty retreat. On looking back, however, Graydon and his helpers were horrified to see that the mules, faithful to the end, instead of going toward the enemy, were following them. Graydon and the others managed to stay ahead of the mules until the shells exploded harmlessly, except for the unfortunate mules, of course. Early the following morning, Friday, February 21, 1862, Sibley again started the Confederate column up the east side of the Rio Grande, aiming for the fort at Valverde, six miles above Fort Craig. When Canby learned of the movement, he sent Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin S. Roberts and a detachment of 220 cavalry, followed by infantry and artillery, hurrying up the west bank of the river to block the Confederate crossing. The Federals arrived opposite Valverde to find an advanced unit of 180 Texans under rancher and Mexican War veteran Major Charles Pyron, occupying a cottonwood grove over on the east bank. Roberts sent three companies of the 3rd Cavalry and one company of the 1st Cavalry splashing across the ford. After prolonged maneuvering, the cavalry troopers drove Pyron's Confederates away from the river to the protection of some nearby sand hills. 
Roberts then set up two artillery batteries supported by skirmishers on the west bank and commenced bombarding the far side of the river as more of Sibley's men began to arrive on the scene. The fighting increased in intensity about 11 a.m. when the 4th Regiment of Texas Mounted Volunteers rushed up, led by Colonel William Dirty Shirt Scurry, followed by a battery of howitzers. As the Confederate guns traded fire with the Union batteries across the river, Scurry made an unsuccessful attempt to retake the Cottonwood Grove. Toward noon, Union reinforcements led by Captain Henry R. Selden, including the Company of Colorado Volunteers, joined Roberts on the West Bank. Soon afterward, Kit Carson arrived with eight companies of his New Mexicans. Fearing a threat to his left flank, Roberts sent those fresh troops upstream. There, Selden's command waded the cold waters of the Rio Grande and once on the east bank launched a fierce bayonet charge that drove off a force of dismounted Texans from a patch of woods. But then the Federals faced a counterattack by a company of Lancers from the 5th Texas. Coming on at full gallop, the sight of the Lancers nearly panicked the Colorado volunteers who were in the path of their charge. But then the Coloradans' commanding officer, Captain Theodore H. Dodd, Cooley closed up his ranks and shouted, They are Texans! Give them hell! And a volley shattered the Lancers' front line, knocking men and horses to the ground. Some of the Texans, a Colorado private wrote, quote, came near enough to be transfixed and lifted from their saddles by bayonets, but the greater part bit the dust before the lances could come in use, end quote. Only three of the seventy lancers escaped unharmed. The bloodied survivors fell back to their own lines in disorder. Encouraged by the Coloradans' success, Roberts now crossed his artillery over to the east bank. As the fighting raged, about 1.30, Sibley became too ill-slash-drunk to remain on the field, and so he withdrew and spent the rest of the battle in the rear in an ambulance. With Sibley unable to direct the battle, command once again devolved to Colonel Tom Green of the 5th Texas. One of Sibley's soldiers would later write, quote, The commanding general was an old army officer whose love for liquor exceeded that for home, country, or God. End quote. At any rate, Green proved more than capable of filling Sibley's shoes, as under his direction, the Texans fought furiously, beating off the Federal attacks until, in the late afternoon, they made a climactic rush of their own that carried the day. The stage had been set about three o'clock. Canby arrived from Fort Craig and took over field command. Recalling Kit Carson's regiment from its position upstream, he ordered Carson's troops and the 2nd New Mexico to cross the river and join in an assault on the Texans' left. Carson's regiment quickly moved into position, but most of the men of the 2nd New Mexico refused to obey Canby's order. During the confusion caused by the aborted federal assault, Green launched a two-pronged counterattack. Forming up out of sight behind some high sand ridges, about 200 Texans, led by Major Henry W. Raguet, suddenly emerged and charged down a slope against the artillery battery on Canby's right wing. The attack was met by some dismounted Federal cavalrymen and other units, including Kit Carson's New Mexicans, and the Confederates were thrown back, with 40 men killed or wounded. A different story, however, was unfolding on the other flank. 
There, about 4 p.m., Green sent a yelling mass of 750 dismounted Texans, led by Major Samuel A. Lockridge, across open ground toward the Federal Battery commanded by Captain Alexander McRae. A storm of canister met the Confederates, and they wavered momentarily, taking heavy losses, but then they dashed forward and reached the Federal guns. Once they reached the enemy battery, the Texans began firing their pistols at point-blank range, clubbing gunners with musket butts and slashing left and right with their huge bowie knives. Two companies of the 2nd New Mexico supporting McRae's battery abandoned their positions, quote, in the wildest confusion, end quote, according to Canby. Their flight demoralized a company of the 7th Infantry. Meanwhile, as the vicious close combat swirled around the Federal guns, both Major Lockridge and Captain McRae were killed, some claimed by simultaneously shooting each other across one of the contested cannon. But Lockridge's attack had cracked the Federal line, and when a counterattack failed to retake McRae's lost guns, Canby ordered a general withdrawal back to the safety of Fort Craig. As the Federal troops fell back across the river, Shells from McRae's captured battery exploded among them as the Confederates turned the cannon upon their former owners. As the first of the Texans prepared to cross the river in pursuit of the disorganized Federals, Canby sent a delegation, under a flag of truce, over the river to request a two-day truce to attend to the wounded and bury the dead. Green agreed, and stretcher bears from both sides mingled on the now-quiet battlefield searching for casualties. After the battle, having miraculously regained his health slash sobered up, Sibley again took command and the following morning, under a flag of truce, sent Scurry and two other officers to the fort to demand the surrender of the post and all its supplies and material, with parole offered to the federal officers and men. But since his force, aside from losing a number of New Mexico volunteers and militia and McRae's six cannon, since his force was mostly still intact and retained its fighting ability, Canby refused to surrender, telling the Texans that if they wanted the fort, they would have to take it. The Confederate officers returned to Sibley with the disappointing news. There would be no surrender. In his book on the battle, John Taylor lists Confederate casualties as 71 killed and 157 wounded, and Union casualties as 111 killed, 160 wounded, and 204 missing. The Confederates apparently captured just 21 Union prisoners, so the high number of missing for the Federals, 204, can probably be attributed to the fact that Canby's force was a peculiar hodgepodge of units, with 15 different regiments or independent companies comprising regular Army infantry, cavalry, and artillery, as well as New Mexico volunteers, New Mexico militia, and Colorado volunteers. So the confusion with regard to accounting for personnel in the immediate aftermath of the battle can be imagined. Though the Texans had won the field at Valverde, it was a hollow victory, since not only had they lost over 200 men dead or wounded, but the supplies and forage at Fort Craig, the capture of which was essential to Sibley's live-off-the-land strategy, well, the supplies and forage were still in Federal hands, leaving the Confederate column with only five days' worth of provisions for men and animals. And to make matters even worse, the Federals hadn't been badly damaged, certainly not destroyed, 
and so Canby still had a force of over 3,000 men safely behind the walls of the fort. Sibley obviously faced a serious dilemma. With his depleted supply train, he didn't have the means to settle in and subject Fort Craig to a prolonged siege, and he was unwilling to risk his army on an all-or-nothing attack on the place. At the same time, he was reluctant to go back to Mesilla, which would be an admission that his invasion of New Mexico had failed. After calling a council of war, Sibley, almost certainly encouraged to do so by his key lieutenants, decided to continue northward and take the risk of leaving a still strong Fort Craig sitting astride his line of communications. And so Sibley would go forward, leaving the fort in his rear, and head for Albuquerque and Santa Fe, where he hoped to replenish his supplies from captured federal depots. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Bloody Valverde, A Civil War Battle on the Rio Grande, February 21, 1862, by John Taylor. Besides Taylor's book, which is pretty much the only book-length treatment of Valverde out there, uh, but thankfully it's a well-written, thoroughly researched study of the battle, but anyway, besides Taylor's book, we also want to mention that America's Civil War magazine from January 2013 has a short piece on the Battle of Valverde that includes several excellent maps. And having said that, you guys know the drill. I'm going to remind you that to find all of our recommendations, whether book or magazine or an unpublished manuscript we found buried at the bottom of Tracy's Hope Chest, you can go to the podcast website and find them all at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then we'll remind y'all that the music we use at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with Sibley's New Mexico campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.